Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by two guests, Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein. Catherine is an assistant professor of urban science and planning at MIT, and Lauren is an associate professor of English and quantitative theory and methods at Emory University. They are the authors of Data Feminism. In it, they explore the limits and uses of data science and how data can both reinforce and challenge systems and structures of power. Catherine and Lauren are both data scientists and describe themselves as hacker moms. I discovered their work in 2019 when Catherine reached out to me about being a part of the MIT Menstruation Hackathon. It was set for January 2020, but the hackathon never happened because the world was a very different place by the time January rolled around. But as is the case with most good things, they come to those who wait. And I loved getting the chance to have our own mini hackathon through this conversation where the three of us dived into how not all feminisms are created equal or are they compatible, why we need to examine power and oppression in our daily lives, how women are hurt by bad and missing data, and that data doesn't have to be scary. It can be a tool for our collective liberation. Okay, let's get to my chat with Catherine and Lauren. You know, I just want to say that I think what you're doing is so important. And, you know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to have both of you and also to cover this book on the pod was because I think there's not really a deep understanding of how important data is and how 
it's interpreted affects our lives, especially the lives of women because of a myriad of issues around how research is actually done and codified and, and kind of explored. And so I really love this kind of every person approach the book takes in the sense of this is all of our responsibility to look at data and to be involved in it at any level, just in your own individual everyday life. It really struck me as a time to just bring this conversation, you know, out from more academic and, you know, kind of more closed circles into just more a general conversation around data. And so I'd love for you both to share a little bit about, you know, the background that kind of brought you to come together on this book. Sure. Thanks, Erica. It's a great pleasure to be here. This is Catherine D'Ignazio, and I am a professor at MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, but I describe myself as a hacker mama, meaning I, I'm a hacker and I'm a mama of three kids. I'm also sort of both a scholar and a designer. You can sort of see that show up in our our book because we pull a lot of examples from, you know, outside the academy. And I think that what you were saying really resonates with me because in terms of making data a broader conversation and making data accessible and connected to our everyday lives, because that's very much what we try to do in the book is to say that, to sort of like open it up and say, actually, yeah, data are touching our everyday lives. And also they're not only the realm of technical specialists, experts, um, people that know how to work with, you know, millions or billions of rows in a database, but they're actually the purview of journalists and educators and librarians and social movements and community-based organizations. And so to sort of unpack that and show how folks are using data towards justice-oriented ends already. Prior to coming into the academy and being a professor, my background is in software development. So I was a software, like a computer programmer for over 10 years and a database programmer. And in parallel was independent artists and designers. I was able to like bring those things together in the academic work and specifically actually in data work. So for me, those things always came together, in fact, in the map. So maps being very sort of data oriented behind the map, there's all this geographic data, but then at the same time, there's all this visual and design and sort of human facing thing and maps are tools. They're meant to be used by real people in everyday life situations. So for me, the map has been always like a really exciting intersection point. You described yourself as a hacker mama. And I think the word hacker very much like this idea of data, people tend to not actually understand what it means. And I'm really curious about how you describe the term hacker. What, what does hacker mean to you? Sure. Yeah. So by hacker, I don't mean the people who are, you know, breaking into government systems and uh, stealing data and whatnot, but I mean more folks who are using computer systems and computation in potentially very new ways for new ends or sometimes just for playful purposes. So thinking about ways that we can do that with technologies that were meant to serve one purpose, but we actually turn it towards another end. And I think about that in relation to also the fact that I've been for the past, what, eight years or so, I've been producing feminist hackathons. And so in a way we've been hacking the hackathon, like we've been 
appropriating the hackathon, which is very like male, you know, technical, intensive, sleep deprived event and trying to turn hackathons into spaces of caring, spaces for babies and families, spaces to build feminist technologies, to build joy and care and things like that. And so that's, that's another way we can hack in like a metaphorical sense is we can like take stuff that exists and repurpose it and um, turn it towards new ends, basically. Yeah, I, I love that. I love the idea as well of kind of taking it out of the kind of male sleep deprivative technical space into, you know, rethinking systems of care and bringing women together collectively to, you know, explore new ways of, of doing things. So Lauren, just a little bit about you as well. So I guess technically I'm also a hacker mama, but I usually say, I'm sort of in contrast to Catherine, I sort of, I view myself as a professional nerd. So like Catherine, I have a background in computers, in um, computer programming, but at a certain point after the first dot-com crash, I decided to go back to grad school. And so I sort of went all in on academia, but I never really let go of my love of computers and technical things and code and data. And I've always been interested in how those types of approaches can be applied to more humanistic research questions. So questions about history, questions about literature, questions about culture. And I'm really interested in, in my work, what I try to do is use these technical and large scale approaches to try to shed some new light on these ages old questions about mostly, you know, for me, I'm interested in like, who was doing the work of things like our national culture of, yeah, I do a lot of work in the 19th century and social movements. So like who was actually doing the work to change things, to work towards abolition, to work from our women's rights. And it turns out, you know, like there's the stories that we hear and then there's what actually happened. And sometimes when you approach these historical things in new ways, and in my case, through these digital methods, and especially if you sort of turn these essentially like text and narrative into data, you can see patterns that you wouldn't necessarily have been able to see before. And that's why I try to use those approaches and incorporate them back into essentially stories, honestly. I mean, that's sort of what I view, what I do is like, I try to tell a new and convincing story about people who I think deserve more credit than they have traditionally gotten in, you know, how we understand, especially questions about the nation and again these social movements and how change happens and it's really interesting just to hear the intersections between the two of you and your work so i think where i'd love to begin is feminists don't all agree with each other and i think we all come to the framework of feminism from very different backgrounds what is the lens of feminism that the two of you approached this book from that is, it's such an important question. And it's, it's what we actually, when we give presentations about our book, we lead with this because we want to ground people and like, which feminism are we talking about? Because I think there are many feminisms and they're not all necessarily compatible with each other. And so we have a couple like basics that we say is sort of like, you know, at its root, feminism is a belief in equality for all genders. But secondly, it's also about looking around at the world and you can see that those equal rights for all genders have not yet been realized and so it's about taking action to realize that world in which all genders are equal but then also and this is maybe the 
crux of it. We also draw a lot from Black feminism and specifically from like Kimberly Crenshaw and Patricia Hill Collins, who really use this framework of intersectionality. So intersectional feminism, where, you know, looking at some of the exclusions of the sort of second wave feminist movement and with sort of what's going on in the women's movement in the 70s and 80s, saying, hey, in fact, like, we can't explain all aspects of social inequality by just looking at gender. In fact, we have to look always at the intersection of sexism and racism. And Crenshaw in particular was writing about Black women's experiences and saying like, you know, racism and sexism combine and compound and make these intersections in a way that you, if you're only looking at, at sexism, you miss this whole world over here that is because of these structural forces of racism. And then, you know, she's built upon that. Patricia Collins has built upon that. Many other folks have built upon that. And we're really in this moment now where I'm thinking about how do we, you know, expand feminism beyond this naive concept, like an idea that's only about women or that it's even only about gender, but really thinking about how it's about power and it's how we analyze unequal social power. We unpack it. And ultimately we do that in order to challenge it and work towards justice. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. There are a few core principles in the book and all of them really resonated with me, but there were a few that I really wanted to just unpack a little bit. This idea of examining power and, and unpacking it. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what is this power? Because to me, through looking at the book and my own experience, you know, power equals oppression. And... I think that's not really front of mind for people when they think about power, at least in the structures that we currently live in. Yeah, intersectionality. I think at this point, you know, most people have heard that term and they take it, you know, their sense of it is that it has something to do with people's intersecting identities, right? You know, like I, myself, Lauren, you know, I'm personally like I am white, I'm a cisgender woman, I live in the global north. Like these are sort of these attributes or aspects of my identity. And for sure, many of the theories of intersectionality began by individuals and collectives, we should say, like the the Combahee River Collective as well. They're, you know, a big force behind thinking about intersectionality, began by thinking about their own experiences. But then they started to ask, like, why did these aspects of my identity, why do they matter? And why they matter is because of these larger forces of power, 
right? And so intersectionality as this theory is trying to get at the root cause or like the reasons why it matters that, for instance, like I experience a lot of privilege because I'm white, right? I experience a lot of privilege because I'm a cisgender woman. I'm not trans, right? And so it's like, well, why is that? Why is that so? Why do some people experience instances of privilege on the one hand and oppression on the other? It has to do with these larger structures of power that are sort of swirling all around us that are creating opportunities on the one hand or preventing opportunities on the other. That's sort of what intersectionality is trying to explain. But then it still sort of leaves us with this question of like, well, okay, well, I still haven't answered this question of like, what is power, right? And, you know, this is one of the reasons why we turn to Patricia Hill Collins in the book. And Catherine mentioned her formulation of the matrix of domination. And, you know, what she really tries to do is say, okay, like, let's see if we can atomize how power works in the world a little bit more so that we can understand what's happening to people, like so that we can understand the root cause of these experiences. And where she arrives at is these four sort of different levels and I guess levels is a misnomer. She deliberately uses the framing of a matrix because the point is that they're not hierarchical, right? They're all sort of intersecting in the way that matrices can connect at different angles and things like that. But she essentially says there's, there's these four different ways in which people experience the effects of power from the structural right? These like large structural forces of racism or sexism and so on, very down to what she calls the interpersonal, like how your experience in the world is impacted just by, you know, who you interact with, what shops you go into, what shops you don't go into, where like who you meet on the bus, this kind of thing. And the really helpful, and then there's sort of intermediary levels as well, right? Um, so there's the level of like the governmental or the sort of like the enforcement domain, like laws, sometimes explicit laws about who can do certain things and who can't do certain things. So for instance, like we've seen right now, these laws about whether trans kids can play sports with their gender, right? Um, so that's an example of like a law preventing or creating oppression, right? So explicit laws. But then there's also what she calls the hegemonic domain. And this is sort of like the realm of culture, sort of like the absorbed you know, what now I think we probably call like biases or, you know, I guess that's probably a good word, like these sort of absorbed assumptions about who and what types of people can do certain things and can't do other things. And so essentially she creates this framework. And so one of the nice things about this framework is like she's, on the one hand, it's still sort of, you know, like she's trying to describe this really complicated thing. On the other hand, she gives us four specific ways in which power operates. And once you understand what those four separate ways are, you can sort of say like, okay, let's do an analysis of power here. Let's see how power operates in my life. Like what is interpersonal? What is structural? What is hegemonic? You know, things like this. And then you can sort of say, okay, this is how power is working. How can I change it? Or how can I push back against it? Or in my case, like, how am I benefiting from this? And what do I need to do in order to rebalance these forces of power that sort of, you know, lift me personally up, but other people don't have access to that same kind of, you know, like momentum behind them. What would be an example of hegemonic power for someone trying to understand where that fits into their lives? So you can see this, the hegemonic domain is really like culture. So if you think of any kind of stereotype that circulates in culture, so for example, I'll give you one from a project that I'm working on right now, I'm working on 
with uh, on a project helping to build technology for activists who are working on gender-based violence and they collect reports of violence from news media reports but very often the news media reports themselves circulate these really harmful stereotypes basically sort of very victim blaming so they're sort of like framing like oh well this person was a sex worker oh well this person was drunk uh, this person was wearing very revealing clothing and so there this is sort of participating circulating the stereotype of like sort of deserving and the undeserving victim where you know if somebody's a a, a victim of violence that they just are that and they don't deserve that no matter what but like this would be in the hegemonic domain where it's like the media is sort of supporting this idea that some people might deserve that violence to be visited upon them whereas other people you know if they don't go out late at night if they don't wear revealing clothing if they make sure not to drink you know if they are like putting themselves in a small prison then maybe you could be the deserving the undeserving victim right I want to circle back to this idea of domination that you were talking about, Lauren. And I'm really curious about how women and marginalized people are hurt by our current data practices. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the data and data structures and data systems, like they're very unequal. The people who have the ability to collect and mobilize and analyze and communicate big data, these vast amounts of, of data, these are the people at the top. You know, they're connected to these enormous corporations, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples of the world, well-resourced governments, well-resourced academic institutions. You know, who runs those institutions? They tend to be predominantly white and male in unequal, in unequal reflection of who the actual population is. All of the technology, you need a lot of advanced training in order to do it. Increasingly, you need a lot of environmental resources and also financial resources in order to store the data, in order to process the data. What all of this leads to is this tremendous imbalance of power between who has access to the data and the data analysis and sort of the ability to frame the questions and then the people, pretty much everyone else who are not at these big corporations, who just find themselves sort of on the receiving end of whatever data system sort of has decided whatever it is, you know, about them. And these data systems, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. They're in so many more places that we think, you know, and I think some of them we're a little bit more familiar with than others. I mean, we sort of know that like, you know, ads follow us around the internet. You know, if you look for a pair of shoes on one website, you'll often find like that same pair of shoes literally clomping after you on another. I mean, that's done with data, right? But there's also these predictive systems that say like, hey, if you like shoes, you might like, I don't know, socks. I guess that's not a very exciting example. It's also not a very nefarious one, but they can get incredibly nefarious when these same types of systems are applied, for instance, to decide like who gets to or who need or is told they need to go to jail versus other people who are set who's are told like you can be free on bail, right? In some cases, this is decided by an algorithmic system, a data-driven system. Other places, facial recognition will scan an image of your face and say like, we think you match the profile of a criminal, right? And that's done by a data-driven system. And these systems are essentially unchecked by the people who, whose lives they impact the most. This is at, at root, it's a question of unequal power. 
and what you do and what the, you know, how you respond to this, this is where we look to intersectional feminism and its analysis of power in order to essentially sort of show us the path, like, you know, <laughs> show us the way through or, you know, show us how to resist and show us how to respond to these unequal conditions that we're all facing. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I think I'm really curious to know when it comes to women specifically, especially around our well-being, where data really does a lot of harm. We do so little research on women. And so there is a deficit of good data about cis women in the pool that is being pulled from by AI or any other type of technology. And so I'm really curious, again, really thinking about this idea that all genders are equal when we're thinking about just the macro framework of feminism, if we don't have enough data or good research on women, cis women specifically, how can we create equality and and how can we reduce that harm? So a lot of the ways that these issues come up with with women and with cis women specifically, but I think some of this also does apply to trans communities as well, who are also under-researched and yet over-surveilled, right, paradoxically, is around this idea of missing data. So really thinking about, you know, I think it's in either the first or second chapter, I can't remember at this point, but where, you know, we talk about maternal mortality, for example. And, you know, this is one of, I think, sort of many areas of women's health where you would expect that we have a kind of comprehensive handle on how many women are dying in childbirth, what, you know, what are the causes? Are we, is it getting better? Is it not getting better? And in fact, you know, the CDC, I think this has changed actually, because there's been a big push around this, but we actually don't have comprehensive national statistics on maternal mortality, partially because of the way that it's collected is very ad hoc, it's very state-based, and so on and so forth. Of course, what we do know is that there's huge racial inequalities in who's dying in childbirth. So, you know, this, what this highlights is sort of like some of the data issues, you know, a lot of the conversation technical spaces right now is around de-biasing algorithms. So like looking at when, you know, algorithms are producing biased outcomes, how do we de-bias those? Or how do we take a particular database and, you know, make it like race blind or gender blind or something. But in fact, what we're trying to point out with this idea of missing data is that the, the, the sort of bias, which is really structural oppression, <laughs> enters into this equation long before we even have data because it's 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 about what do we even choose to allocate resources what do we deem important enough to count 
to collect, to monitor, to metricize and, you know, improve or not improve or craft policy around. And too often, you know, the things that touch, you know, women's health has been considered sort of stigmatized for years, you know, until actually really recently, women were excluded, or at least cis women were excluded from health studies because they menstruate, <laughs> you know, so this was considered this That's like- exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm talking about. I think most people yeah. don't even know that. I mean, one of the things, you know, working as a birth doula for so many years was that the all the clinical trials and the information that we have about epidurals are all run on men around the same height as a <laughs> cis woman. <laughs> when I think epidurals are the epidurals in labor or that right. usage of epidurals is the highest usage of them yeah. <laughs> in the country. Yeah. So it's just, again, it's this, I think really what you're speaking to and this example that I just shared are just two shining examples of this way that oppression can come in and it can feel, you know, it can feel not oppressive because of how long we've had to deal with it in the case of the epidural piece. But then I think it also, if you don't know, then you don't know. There's just a lot of information that we don't have clarity on. Totally, totally. There's a great book title that we quote in the book. There's a cardiologist that wrote a book called Women Are Not Just Small Men, <laughs> which I love this title because <laughs> it's like, it, that's that's the point, you know, is that like, you know, the whole topic of her book is about how heart disease unfolds differently along different pathways in women. And we need to study that <laughs> and we need more information about that. But I think, but this is exactly it is sort of like what has happened because of the uh, fact that science has been dominated by men, but also by white people and also by quite elite people, also by global North people, cisgender people, and so on, is that we arrive at this concept of like, who's the default body? So everything is like, everything kind of is, is how it differs from that default body. And the thing is that default body, that default person sort of shows up in data sets and data systems as well. And so if, you know, we show, for example, the work of Joy Bolamwini, who's really challenged the facial recognition libraries out there and shown, she's audited them and shown how they're trained on data sets that are like over 80% white men, basically. So they fail terribly for women. They fail worse for women of color. And it's sort of like logical, but of course, why does it have to be the black woman who's using the system? Like, how is it that it arrived that all of these libraries systematically do this, but nobody catches this? There are no checks and balances for this. And, you know, one of the things we would assert from the perspective of the book is like, this is exactly why we need feminism. <laughs> Because we need to be looking for this. We need to be assuming that these structural forces of oppression, they're going to show up in our data and our databases in the same ways that they show up in our policies and our institutions and in like all of these other places in society. That's racism and sexism are there. And so we need to have ways to look for them. We need to have the concepts and thoughts to be able to hold them and talk about them and deal with them. I want to talk about emotion and embodiment, which are a part of one of the core principles in data feminism. Why do you think that those two things are important when it comes to how data is created, how data is collected, and just 
the culture that we are trying to co-create around data moving forward. One of the interesting things about data is that it sort of comes, it's sort of the concept and the idea to begin to quantify things emerges at the same time that certain types of knowledge, essentially is like the birth of modern science or modern Western science, right? So at the same time that people were turning to experiments, to collecting information and trying to sort of generalize or abstract on the basis of systematically collected bits of experience, essentially, this is like the, this is sort of leads to the creation of data. And along the way, emotion sort of gets pushed out of the equation. I guess that's a, a simple way of saying it. So in other words, as we learn to sort of, as a society, as a sort of Anglo-Western culture, we're being told the best form of knowledge is this kind of knowledge that comes from experiments, from science, from these sort of systematic and structured sort of situations. Like we're also being told like emotion isn't as good. You can't really trust what you're feeling. That's, some, that's somehow like it's devalued. And of course, this also maps onto this binaristic way of thinking about anything, right? About gender, you know, about this design, this sort of like reason versus emotion paradigm and this idea that you do need to choose between one or the other. And so one of the things we try to explain in the book is how, first of all, you know, like feminism teaches us that we're very often presented with these false choices you know this idea that like if you value data or science then you can't also value individual experience or lived experience or sort of what you're uh, what you're feeling or intuition is telling you like that's a false choice right you can bring those two things together and then the other thing that feminism helps us see is that there really is secretly like a hierarchy in there you know, most of these binaries are sort of hiding a value judgment about something being good or something being better and something being worse. And this is like, it's so embedded in, I'm going to say like our culture, meaning sort of like, again, Anglo, Western, US in particular culture, that it's sometimes hard to see. But if you stop to think about it, you realize like, oh yeah, like, of course, you know, how many people do you say like, oh, you know, like, well, I trust the data, I trust the science. And of course, we should trust data and we should trust science. But that doesn't mean that we also can't admit individual experience into the equation as well, right? Like one of the, the sort of bring it back to what Catherine was talking about earlier, Black women's maternal mortality. In the, in the book, we start with the story of Serena Williams, who herself experienced a complication in childbirth. And she knew, she's like, something is going on with my body. Like something is going wrong here, right? And she insisted, and because she was Serena Williams, you know, international tennis star and someone who was incredibly attuned with her body, she was able to get the, the diagnostic test that showed that sure enough, she was in the midst of having a, a complication. You know, and this was a personal experience that happened to her. But then as she looked into it, she realized like, not only was this a personal experience, but it also was something that was happening to other people. And so she was able to sort of pull together individual experiences in order to say, like, this is also a structural problem as well. And so we talk about that as a real model of how a feminist approach to data science should be, you know, by all means, collecting all of the data that you can find in order to show these large scale structural problems, but also recognizing that we can learn so much from what happens to a person, right? Like if someone says, this is a problem or this happened to me, like you believe them, right? And you incorporate that and you allow that to stand next to a data set or your, you know, 
10,000 person sample size or whatever. And you don't sort of say, oh, well, since I have more people in this big data set, that's better. Or because this has more statistical power, that's better. Like you also really, really value and like deeply to your core. And I think for some of us, like this involves some unlearning too, right? You know, we need to open ourselves up to the idea that a single person's experience can sort of stand next to this big picture of what's going on sort of at large scale. Patricia Hill Collins, we draw from a lot in the book, has this concept of uh, subjugated knowledge. And so it's, it's worth thinking about, you know, what happens when, say, like half the population is excluded from health research because they menstruate, right? It's sort of like there's all of this knowledge that doesn't make it into, you know, whatever, quote unquote, official sort of academic or scientific knowledge sources. And so the way to surface that, the way to counteract that, the like decades or potentially centuries of overemphasis or only emphasis on men or white men or so on is to value these experiences and to bring in that subjugated knowledge. And often that has to come in through these more informal means because it's just simply, there's not like this like decades of uh, papers to cite that have studied the topic. How do we lift up the value of these qualitative experiences? How do we lift that up and connect it? And in fact, like there's feminist practice, like feminist activist practices, if you've heard of that, the personal is the, is political, that was out of feminist consciousness raising groups, where the whole point of feminist consciousness raising groups was to get together with other women, like-minded women, and to share your own experiences of oppression and to try to connect the dots from the personal to the political, because so many of the things that women experience are placed into like the domestic realm or the personal realm. And then it can be really eye-opening when you realize, oh, I am not alone. Like this is not only my experience because I am a flawed person, but actually there's all of these other people out there that are having the same experience. That in fact, this is a, a macro phenomenon. And so just th that for me, so I mean, I think that's kind of like where we can get through valuing sort of this embodied experience, lived experience is we can get to the point where actually those are clues, they're pathways into understanding macro phenomenon. They're also pathways into, you know, destigmatizing a lot of the topics, especially around health, but that we feel like guilt or shame or we're an inadequate or it was our fault or something like this. So I think they're also potentially, I mean, this is the way it was used in consciousness raising groups, but potentially pathways to healing. If we're thinking about our personal experience and Catherine, you were just saying the importance of actually bringing in these lived experiences, these qualitative experiences. How can we begin to build our own awareness and actively practice a lot of what's brought forward in the book? And how do we start recognizing these power structures within our own lives? How can we talk to people that we love and care about how can we use our individual platforms to you know create more awareness around this i think it's really important sort of the difference between saying and then really like internalizing and thinking about and allowing yourself to believe this fact and it's that this oppression is real that it's ongoing and that it's necessary for all of us even those of us who do not experience oppression 
as much as others to take steps to dismantle. And I think that's the starting point, not coming to it from the position of questioning, sort of determining whether it exists or not, saying the starting point is this is happening. And then where do we go from here? And then sort of a follow-up point to that, I would say, and this is another line from Patricia Hill Collins, but I find that I... I often say this in the early, I I teach, I teach at Emory, and I usually find myself saying this in one of the first couple of classes and whatever class I'm talking about that has to do with like any complicated issue. And Patricia Hill Collins says, like in the world, there are very few pure victims and there are very few pure oppressors, right? We all in different ways, experiences, instances of privilege in our lives and also instances of oppression. And I feel like when people hear that, it really allows them to sort of breathe a sigh of relief, especially for those of us in positions of power. You know, I think there's a lot of people being like, oh, I'm so bad. You know, oh, what do I do? It's so bad. You know, it's like, okay, you know, like all of us, you know, things are complicated always, right? Once we can think about and understand the fact that, you know, all of us are working from bringing our own experiences, which are varied, but which in themselves sort of like run the gamut of human experience, we can bring those experiences together to work towards this sort of better future that we're all envisioning. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll just say some more specific to data. So I think the, you know, one thing that folks can start doing, whether or not you consider yourself a data person, or maybe even especially if you don't, is just to start to pay attention to some of the public conversations that are happening right now around racism, sexism, and bias in data and big technologies. Because there are, you know, sometimes there's the stakes don't appear to be that high, but there are some really high stakes here. And so there are algorithms that are determining, for example, like who's getting profiled and arrested for crimes. There's algorithms that are determining which CVs make it, which resumes make it through a screening system and who gets jobs. There's algorithms determining risk assessments that determine whether people get free on bail when they've been detained or whether they stay in jail. There's algorithms that are credit scoring us. So they're determining your credit score, which is ultimately going to make you, you know, have a get a loan or not get a loan from a bank for to buy something. So like the there are these real ways and they're sort of hidden in our everyday lives. And so I think one prompt to just start is to have people start to think about the ways that data and algorithms are touching their everyday lives. And then I think the other thing is for folks not to be scared of data or to be thinking that this is only a conversation for technical people, because the reality is there are so many public implications of data and algorithms that we really need everyone at the table. And we especially need people in uh, social movements. We need journalists. We need people in law. We need a lot of people to be able to make sure that the technical systems that we are developing are inclusive and that they are orienting us towards justice rather than further perpetuation of an unjust status quo. So I think there are ways to get involved with data that are seriously as simple as just like opening Excel and collecting your own sort of counter data or like auditing your institution or whatever the case might be. But it all just starts, you know, with like a spreadsheet or something like that. So that's that's the other thing I would say is like you don't have to be uber technical to care about justice in data and algorithms. And if you don't want to use a spreadsheet, you could use pocket which is this fun app that i've been using recently where you basically could just collect all of your articles that you you can 
that you can use to collect all the articles that you find online. And the AI piece about Pocket is that when you pay for it, it will read the stories back to you in any accent and any gender you like. So, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, but this has been this has been an incredibly insightful conversation, and I'm hopeful it'll be a door opener for people who have been focused on so many other things, especially with everything we've all just come out of and are trying to think about new ways of having just more awareness in their lives. And I think this is a really important and new place to start that I think once you really dig in and start to pull it apart, it can really help support so many other parts of, of your well-being. Absolutely. As a next step that people can take, there's a film out now on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you can watch it for free. It's called Coded Bias. And it's about this work by Joy Bolamwini that I referenced around facial recognition. And it's a about a lot of the activist work that's going on in facial recognition technology specifically in the US. And so I think that's also a great next step for people to get more familiar and into the issues. Lauren, Catherine, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to my conversation today with Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein. To borrow a line from their book, Data Feminism Isn't Only About Women. To continue learning, I hope you'll check out their book, Data Feminism. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.